the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. People get so caught up in day-to-day activities and in caring for others that they forget to live and practice self-care. Then, as they age and get close to the end of their life, they often have regrets about the things they wish they had done. It's been reported that at the top of that list is not being true to themselves, not expressing their feelings, or sufficiently going for their own happiness. Women, especially, have a habit of putting the happiness of others before their own. Joining us today to talk about why it is so important to take ownership of our life is family counselor Jane Weicker. Jane claims that she first took charge of her life after she left her dysfunctional marriage and became a single mother to four children. After the divorce, she started her career as a parent educator and she spent the next three decades as a family counselor. According to Jane, choosing to be soul selfish is the most vital lesson a woman can learn. Jane is the author of Soul Selfish, The Awakening of a Good Girl. Welcome, Jane. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Jane, let's start off this conversation by talking about your marriage. What was it like for you, and when did you decide that you didn't want to remain married? Well, in my first marriage, I was 34 years old when my husband, who was a very successful Wall Street person, uh, came home with the idea of going to Italy for the summer. And sure enough, we did that. Four children, my husband and I, went to Italy for the summer. And it was the most idyllic external environment I could have ever imagined, living in a beautiful home and visiting these beautiful cities and and just the wonderful energy of Italy. And yet when I was on my own, I felt sad sometimes, and I wondered if I can't be totally ecstatic in this environment, I better look inside. And that's when I did. I began to look inside, and I realized that the very same good girl that I was as a, as a little girl with my mom, I was the same good girl with my husband. And as I began to look into myself and ask to receive, he wasn't very, very happy with that. He was much more happy with the good girl who was giving, all giving. So after a while, I saw that this was not going to work, and I chose the divorce. You know, Jane, I'm, I'm listening to you talk, and it sounds like you're telling the story of my life. I was the same good girl. I did everything that everyone expected of me. I did it perfectly. I took care of everyone. And after 23 years of marriage and giving all that I had to nourish my two children and my husband, I asked my husband for something in return. I asked him to nourish me and he couldn't do that. And that became the beginning of the end of our marriage. And so the work that I'm doing today is a result of me saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm important here too, and I need something as well. Well, I echo that. The work that I'm doing is a result of learning that I count and that I have something to offer and that that gives me great pleasure and satisfaction. So after you went through this divorce and you were a single mother to four children, You decided that you wanted to become a family counselor. Do you think that was because of what you experienced in your own family? 
Well, actually, uh, when I divorced, I didn't know what it was going to be because uh, I grew up, um, women went to school, some of us, not many, went to school, to college, and graduated and got married mm-hmm. and had children. And so I, I was a teacher for a couple of years before marriage, but I didn't want to go back to teaching because I had so much of children in my life and I wanted to do something else. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and I just began to meditate and think about and listen to my inner self. And what came out was parent education. And at that time, there was no such thing as parent education. There were just a few books, Benjamin Spock and Chaim Ganat, but nothing about parent education. So I developed a parent education course and took it to the local library, which they accepted with, with great promise. And they did a lot of, of advertising about it, and uh, it became a very popular thing. And I began to do these parent education seminars and started my own parent school. And the parent school was, became so successful that I was asked if uh, primarily mothers came and asked if they could bring their husbands because they would like their husbands to learn about this. So that's when my family counseling practice began. And so, Jane, was this in the late 70s? Yes, in the uh, mid-70s. Okay, so you think that the emphasis on parenting and and the, the school for parenting, was that the result then of women taking a greater role in the nourishment, more in wanting to know how to do it? as opposed to just doing it? Yes, I taught a lot of boundaries, and one of the boundaries were for mothers to take some time for themselves. So it was the beginning of women beginning to hear about I count too, and and from that, when they brought their husbands in for private counseling, um, that began my family counseling practice, which was a 29-year process, which is a beautiful part of my life. Jane, where do you think you got the courage to change your life? There are so many people out there that aren't happy and they know they're in a bad situation, whether it be a relationship or a job or or whatever, but they just are so afraid that they can't take that first step. Well, I think we need a lot of support to do that and a lot of strengthening to do that. And when I came back from Italy, I went into a private session and group sessions where I began to learn about myself. And the more that I learned about myself and the more that I released some of the beliefs and feelings that went along with those limiting beliefs, the more courage I had to to do that. And it was also a financial necessity that I do something. And when I chose divorce, I, I knew that I just wanted to create a happier life and that I had to do something with my life that would make me happy. And so I was so pleased when I began doing these parent education seminars and private counseling because it was so rewarding and so interesting. And it just, I just blossomed in it. And it was my pleasure to see others blossom as well. And I know in my case, I had been telling my husband for years that I wasn't happy and that there were things we needed to work on. But I would, you know, sometimes complain, sometimes cry, sometimes yell, but then I would go back to the same dance. And it finally got to the point where, you know, they say change comes when you cannot stand any longer the way it was. And that was really what happened for me. And I'm not sure my husband believed that I was going to change the dance. And and really, that's when um, I said to myself, I can't live this way anymore. And I need to figure out who I am again and what I need and what I want in order to survive and thrive. That's right. Well, I didn't have all those steps. I just knew I had to leave. Mm-hmm. And, and I trusted that I would find my way. And I didn't know what the way would be. I had no idea. But I knew that this was detrimental to me. I also knew that the contract that my husband and I had was detrimental to my children as a model of what a marriage should be. So I was very, very intent upon doing this, even though I didn't know what I was going to do, and I needed to earn enough money to support myself. So your book is entitled Soul Selfish. What does it mean to be soul selfish, and why is it so important to women to embrace this idea? Well, soul selfish is the path to sustained happiness. 
And it's really obvious that you are the first and most important relationship in your life, although many people don't really see it that way. And once we begin to see the most important relationship in our lives, we begin to look at ourselves and what is really best for ourselves and what is what makes us happy and what makes us fulfilled and what makes our hearts open. And, and once we begin to take care of ourselves, we can take so much better care of our relationships and certainly our children. Are there any strategies that you offer that can help us to achieve this? Oh, so many. <laughs> uh, it's just so important to have tools, you know, to learn how to become soul selfish. And the first is to learn that life is an inside-out process, that your life is governed by your thoughts and your beliefs. Your beliefs create your feelings, and your feelings create your choices. Your choices create your actions. So it's very, very important to go inside, and and that may require a community, that may require one-on-one, it may require groups to begin to be in places where people focus internally, because most of us are very externally driven. And what, what I've come to see is that life is an inside-out process and that everything starts inside of us. And what we see outside of us in our lives is a function of what is inside of us, invisible as it is. Now, I know in my case, I was looking externally for nourishment, for validation. And I don't mean in things, I mean from my partner, that I was deriving my self-worth and value from the way he saw me and the way he treated me. And I think that I started to give so much because it was a way for me to try to get love that I needed. So what are some of the signs that a person can start to recognize that he or she may be giving too much and possibly for the wrong reasons? Well, if you look at yourself and listen to yourself, you will feel energetically whether you're being drained or whether you are being enriched. And uh, when you're constantly giving out, uh, then it's like being on an exhale. And to have a balanced, healthy body, we need to have an inhale and an exhale. And if we're not taking care of ourselves or asking others to support us, then we're on a constant exhale and we're going to become depleted and exhausted. But life is in, it has to be in balance for ourselves in order for us to be really effective in whatever roles we play, whether it be parenting or any career choice that we choose or in a marriage. And it's interesting because when we think of self-care or nourishing ourselves, we tend to believe that we're being selfish. But as you just described, it's really the most selfless thing we can do because when we're depleted, when our well is dry, we have nothing left to give to anyone. Yes, well, I'd like to make the distinction. To me, what I've learned uh, is that there are two levels of selfishness. And the, the selfish word that we think about is really attributed to the ego. Uh, and that's going for what you want without considering the effects on others. Just concerned only with your own pleasure, benefit, or profit. Um, but soul selfish is, is the opposite of that, because on a soul level, we're all connected. And what we want for ourselves, when it's good for us, is also going to be good for others. And we're born with a, a, a spiritual DNA, our soul, which contains our personalities, our abilities, and our talents. Uh, that's our authentic self. And when we live from that authentic self, we are in balance and we create happiness for ourselves and we give to others and generate good feelings with others and good relationships. But it's really, really important to see that we all want to be happy. But most people live external level. Like if I buy a new house or I go on a, a trip that's beautiful or I have a new car or I buy a pretty dress, I'm going to be happy. I go to a party that's fun. I'm going to be happy. But what I'm talking about is on a soul level and taking care of our inner life and releasing negative emotions that pull us down. We are then in a place to really create sustained happiness. And sustained happiness is really the purpose of our lives. If you asked most people what 
would make you truly happy inside? What would nourish your soul? What's your true desire? Most people have no idea. Is there a way that we can tap into that to to see what it is that would fill that hole within us? Well, all that I'm saying and that you're saying is that we need to go inside. And we're not going to find that fulfillment when we have blocks to that fulfillment. So one of the things that is so important to do is to begin to look inside and deal with the pain that we have, deal with the fear that we have, deal with the anger that we have, because those emotions stuffed down in our bellies, they're, they're like a barrier to our soul. And it's like when you look outside on a, on a day that's cloudy, you know there's a sun there that you don't experience. It's the same thing within, that you don't experience your soul if it's covered over with a thick layer of negative emotion that you haven't expressed. So there's an emptying process that's really, really important to get to that place where you're in connection with your authentic self, your soul. Jane, if someone were to ask me how I would have described my life up until really early adulthood, I would say that I was the good girl. And and I even used those words when I described myself in the beginning of this conversation. But you say that being a good girl is a total lie. Why is that the case? Because it's a role that I took on unconsciously, and that's a very key word, that we all take on roles unconsciously. Because childhood is, the the very nature of childhood is dependency. So we are totally dependent upon our parents, and we get constant signals from them of what they like and don't like, what they accept and don't accept. And we create these roles to please them and uh, to get their attention and to get their love. And so there are so many roles other than good girl, as we are. Um, There's bad boy. My brother was a very bad boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's jock, brain, clown, artsy, drama queen. There are so many roles, but each of them are very limiting. And most people don't know that they are living these childhood roles until they go into some kind of a process where they have support and encouragement to let go of the pain and disappointment that they're feeling. And it is that barrier of pain and disappointment and anger and fear that block us from our soul. So what I found in my process was that the more authentic I became, the more able I was to feel and hear and listen to what was really mine to be and mine to do. And, you know, as I'm listening to you, there's, you know, as a parent, on one hand, I'm thinking that this is a great lesson to teach my children about life. But I'm also thinking that this is something I should be paying attention to when my children are taking on roles so that I can then see what it is that they're needing from me. Right. Or even engaging with them about the behavior that you're questioning so that they can become more conscious of that. What we want to be is authentic, and it takes work to become authentic, and that is emptying all the false ideas and beliefs that we have carried or created out of our upbringing. And also the time that we lived in, the era in which we lived, the family system in which we lived, and also the social strata of the family we lived because and the race in which we live. Um, all of those things are conditioning events, and they change the authentic soul with which a baby is born. So the more that we can return to our basic, authentic place from which we were born, the happier and more connected we are to our souls, the more we are able to sustain our happiness. Uh, In this process of, of going through so many years of emptying and becoming more and more who I am, to have created a marriage that 33 years ago that is so beautiful that I treasure every day because I know that it came from the awarenesses that I needed to learn. And that actually is the key. You know, they say so many second and third marriages end because I think people don't take the time after the first relationship ends to go within, to learn and to grow. They just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. 
Yes, because it all depends on the level of consciousness that a person has. How aware are you of yourself? How much do you know yourself? How much do you know what you want? How much do you know how you contribute to problems in relationship? How much do you accept that is not good for you? So the more that you learn about yourself, and the clearer and cleaner you are on your inside, the better your outside is going to be. And this process of cleansing and uh, has given me a beautiful marriage, and it's also given me careers that have evolved that I never would have known about. The book is Soul Selfish, The Awakening of a Good Girl. If you would like to get more information about Jane and her work, you can visit janeweicker.com. Jane, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I believe that love is the most important thing in life, the greatest source of happiness, and that love starts with the self. And love is a spiritual gift, and it sources from within and then extends outward. And that is what I would like for every person to just go inside, clean up and clean out what stands in the way of your happiness, because your happiness is waiting for you to accept it. Jane, thank you so much for being here and for providing this reminder of the importance of self-care and being true to ourself. If we're not happy and nourished, we can't do all the things we want, and that includes caring for others. And, and I think that if our listeners walk away with one important point out of this conversation, it's what you said. Life is an inside-out process. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman, host of Conversations with Joan. I'm excited to announce that we're taking the show on the road, and the first stop is the New York Open Center. Please join me on Sunday, July 21st at 10 a.m. when my guest is Colleen Kelly Alexander, author of Gratitude in Motion. Colleen was hit by a multi-ton freight liner. Her body was mangled from the waist down and drained of its blood. She was resuscitated twice and remained in a coma for over five weeks. Colleen endured multiple surgeries as her body struggled to heal, but Colleen did not just survive. Today, she thrives. To honor the EMTs and medical professionals who saved her life, she has completed 50 races and 40 triathlons. Colleen is truly a miracle. I hope you'll join us. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash events. That's cyacyl.com slash events. And be sure to tune into Conversations with Joan every Sunday night at 10 p.m. right here on AM 970 The Answer. Today is Dr. Katherine Berndorf, co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. She is the co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. She's here today to discuss when you don't have feelings for your newborn. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So, Catherine, when we have a baby, as mothers... We believe that we will fall deeply in love with this child and, and that we'll experience those feelings the minute we set eyes on the baby. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Why is that the case? I think for many women, there's this expectation that they're going to fall madly in love with this, with this new child and that there's a pressure, actually, to feel that way, right? That if you expect it and you've heard it and you see it in social media and on TV and all around, you're setting yourself up to have a very particular experience 
that doesn't happen frequently. And it doesn't make you a bad mother or a bad person or unloving in any way, shape, or form. You've never met this baby, right? They've been a fantasy in your head, even if as they were gestating in your body. You know, you, you have to get to know them. That deep love that people expect to feel is a setup for for feeling defective and deficient. That's actually very interesting because it goes against what most of us believe. And and so you, you use the word frequently in that. So not having those feelings then could be considered more quote unquote normal. You got it. That's exactly. It, it's funny you say it that way because, you know, upwards of 80% of women will have what's called the postpartum blues, right? The baby blues, which we think happens because you're at, you know, at the end of pregnancy, your, your highest levels of progesterone and estrogen and hormones that are, you know, surging throughout the body. And then they, you go through the process of labor and then delivery. And a few days after that, you, during those few days after you've had the baby, right, you can see, oh, I've lost weight because the baby's come out, but you're losing fluid and, and these hormones are shifting and plummeting, right? You're going from the highest levels to the, the, the lowest levels. And, and it's that, that difference between the high, high and the low, low of the hormones that puts you into this kind of hormonal and also mood sensitivity tailspin. And that's what defines and describes the blues. And it's happening also at that time. One, you're supposed to be falling in love with your kid when you feel sort of, you know, these ups and these downs. And so to your very good point, I would say to people, you're the unusual person who falls madly in love with her baby. When you do go through this, is it common to have outsiders say things like, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to love your baby. Does that just fuel the oh, fire? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Perfect question. It, it, it absolutely does. It makes it, it makes us feel worse. It makes us feel like we are, maybe we are defective, that the, the person on the outside doesn't get what's happening on the inside for us. The outside and the inside don't match up. And when that's the case, it's often missed. And so unless you're telling someone, they're not going to know it. So, Catherine, what do you advise when we're going through all of these physical and emotional changes? What can we do to move through this and to manage them? Well, I, I hate to, to say it's our responsibility and put the onus on like the new mom, because that's a very difficult um, you're in a diff at a difficult time, but if you can say how you feel, speak up when you're down or, you know, speak the secret. Don't be scared to say how you feel because that will help diffuse and relieve and, and get you on your way to feeling better, believe it or not, if you share that. One other thing I'll, I'll, I'll say to those on the other side, right, not so not for the new mom, but those around a new mom, look them in the eye and say, how are you? And just wait, just pause, hold the gaze and really mean what you're asking. And it's such a powerful and believe it or not, simple thing to do that really says to the other person, I, I wanna know how you feel. I mean what I'm asking. Are you okay? Are you good? Because if you are, that's great. But if you're not, I want to know. Catherine, are there any signs that someone should be aware of that would tell them that this is more than the normal baby blues and it might be time to seek professional help? There are many, but they're not always easy to spot. So the baby blues are, are not a consistent or persistent state. They typically happen a few days after birth till a, a couple weeks after. And during that time, they're not happening sort of permanently. That whole time is not only the baby blues, right? It happens in moments of hypersensitivity or as we say, mood lability, really high or really low, or you're crying while you're laughing at the same time. It's this weird mix of, quote, hormonal feelings where you just kind of feel off, but highly raw. And that doesn't, that's not every minute of those two weeks, but it's moments during that that can feel very profound. But then you recover and you're like, okay, and then you go on with your day or your life or whatever. When those feelings or those moments continue to add up or crescendo or um, happen more frequently, and then they're going on beyond two weeks or three weeks, 
you're talking about something else. But when it goes on and persists and there's a sense of hopelessness or effortfulness that doesn't make sense or fatigue that's to the bone and not just because you're not sleeping when the because you're a new mom or um, or your appetite's off or you're you're feeling like, you know, life is sort of bleak and it's black and white as opposed to having any color in it. Then you're starting to talk about depressive symptoms. And also depressions in the postpartum can look very anxious. So you might be, you know, keyed up or just really overly vigilant or super cautious in a way that's not allowing you to socialize. All these words and things are experiences that really are telling you something more is going on. The book is What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. If you would like to get more information about Dr. Berndorf and her work, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing awareness to this common problem. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. A new survey shows that more than one third of teens don't expect to be financially independent of their parents by age 30. Joining us to talk about how parents can help their kids achieve economic success is Ed Graholsky, Senior Vice President Brand at Junior Achievement USA. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Joan. So, Ed, a survey that was conducted by Junior Achievement and Citizens Bank shows that teens lack confidence when it comes to achieving financial goals. Specifically, what did the survey show? Well, as you mentioned, we have one-third of teens uh, don't believe they will be financially independent of their parents by the age of 30, and that's certainly uh, disconcerting. Um, Obviously, there's a need to uh, help kids become more confident when it comes to to managing money. So what are some of the factors that you believe contribute to the inability of our kids to achieve financial independence? Well, I think one of the challenges is that kids don't um, often have the opportunity to actually manage money. Um, you know, sometimes the parents will just provide them money to go buy things. And so kids really have to be given an opportunity to create budgets, to save, to, to set financial goals and, and work to achieve them. And so that's certainly one of the things that we would encourage uh, parents to do with their kids if they have an allowance or if they have some sort of outside income to really encourage them to, to take those steps to, to plan for the future. I think one of the benefits that I've experienced in my life, I'm the child of depression parents. So I was always raised with the, um, it was always drilled in me, the importance of saving and of being frugal and living within your means. And I think that I was able to instill that in in my kids. I have a 23-year-old son and a 27-year-old, and fortunately, they're financially independent. But I think it was because, like you're saying, I started savings accounts for them when the time they were christened. And from that point on, every time they earned money, I took them to the bank and I encouraged them to make that deposit. And I think they started to get excited when they would see that number go up. So do you recommend doing something similar to get our kids started at a very early age? Uh, absolutely. I think any opportunity you have to have kids uh, work with money in a savings account is a great way to start that. The other thing that we found from uh, the survey is there's been a year-over-year increase in the percentage of kids who are actually earning money outside of the house through a job, for example. And of those that have jobs, they're more inclined to actually have a bank account. And so there is a correlation between the ability to earn money and the willingness to learn how to manage it. So that's another thing that we would encourage parents to take a look at with their kids once they're certainly at an age where they can work outside the home and, you know, in in the right setting. So in addition to a bank account, what are some other options? What are some other ways that kids can save? Well, you know, one of the things that we found from the survey is there are a lot of kids out there that are doing unbanked saving, you know, in shoebox, piggy bank. I mean, for younger kids, that's certainly a good way to, to start doing things. The other thing is to um, we're trying to encourage um, young people to really start thinking about, um, you know, once they're out of high school, once they have their first job, uh, you know, learning about what a Roth IRA is, for example, or, um, you know, that employers can offer a 401k and really get them to think about what it would take to start putting money into it once they, they hit the job market um, from, from day one versus what typically happens is people wait until they're 
in the early 30s, then they get serious about it. We really want people to, we really want kids to start thinking about once you get out there and really have your first job, start taking those initial steps, start putting away for the future. There are a lot of people today that are struggling financially, a lot of adults, and they may not be the best savers. And a lot of people are, to be honest, living outside of their means. So what example, what role do parents play in setting a good example for our kids? Well, it's interesting because from the survey, parents are the top um, source that teens go to in terms of finding out information about managing money. So obviously, depending on how well those those parents are able to manage money, that also influences how their kids view it. And so um, certainly as a parent, um, I think it's important that um, you know folks get information in terms of you know what responsible money management looks like and, and really impart those lessons on their kids um, because kids really do you go to their parents, they role model their parents first and, and foremost. I know my sons, a lot of their friends, with the phone and technology, online gambling, or um, just different ways that kids can spend money that may not have been available to us when we were growing up. Did the survey cover any of those dynamics in relationship to the ability to save uh, it didn't really delve into that, but there are a lot of online resources that uh, you know young people can use in terms of managing money. Obviously, the smartphone is is ubiquitous, and and kids are very comfortable with it. You know, on the flip side of it is is there is something to be said about having tangible money in your hands and and seeing that you're depleting it as you're spending it. And so, um, there there are opportunities for kids to really learn how to work with things in terms of electronic money management. So so they're you know more cognizant of of the actual money. In the account and how they're spending it. Um, so there, there, there are, are opportunities to, to learn from that perspective. Ed, tell us about Junior Achievement. What are the goals of your organization? Well, our goal is really to inspire young people to succeed in a global economy, and, and we really bring a variety of life lessons to the table that kids may not necessarily get otherwise in school, such as money management, um, exploring career opportunities, career readiness, uh, entrepreneurship, and we reach nearly 5 million kids a year, primarily through the support of volunteers from the business community. Uh, we have about uh, a quarter million volunteers each year who help us with that uh, effort. And where can our listeners go for more information? Uh, they can go to our website at ja.org, or we also have a, a resource for teenagers, uh, jamyway.org. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. You know you're supposed to get at least 30 minutes of exercise a day, but you just don't have that much time. I'm Christina Nemec, co-founder of PATH Health Consultants. Here at PATH, we focus on using lifestyle to prevent and manage health risks. We're a workplace wellness firm dedicated to improving the bottom line of the organizations we work with. Our innovative, personalized approach to wellness supports employees as they adopt and sustain behaviors that improve or maintain their health. In addition, we offer a variety of health seminars and workshops to companies interested in educating and supporting their employees in a group setting. The good news is that exercise is cumulative. Take the dog for a brisk 10-minute walk twice a day plus a quick walk at lunchtime and you're already at 30 minutes. Small changes in your routine can lead to a big difference in your health and fitness. To fit in a few more minutes of exercise, try a couple of these suggestions. Park at the farthest away spot in the parking lot. Jog from the car to your destination. Take the stairs. Speed walk your errands. Use a basket instead of a shopping cart. Carry as many bags as you can when you're unloading the car. If you'd like more information on how to make small changes to your lifestyle that can lead to a big difference in your health or on workplace wellness, please contact us at pathhealthllc.com. That's pathhealthllc.com. Is someone you know and love applying to college soon? Hi, I'm Scott Doty, performance coach, productivity guru, and founder and chief brainiac of New Jersey's most awarded tutoring company, Brainstorm, which offers private in-home tutoring for all school subjects, standardized tests, and college applications coaching. In today's conversation, I want to just mention to you one very important phrase that we use in the college applications world, which is demonstrated interest. These days, students are applying to so many more schools than they used to because they're petrified of not getting in. So they apply all over the place, indiscriminately almost. 
a lot of these colleges can sense that this is a situation among many students. And so a way to really stand out from the pack is to demonstrate interest in the school. And that means a number of things. It means you apply early. You do the optional interview. You do the optional supplemental essays. Maybe you write a resume that they didn't request. You visit the school if you can. You track down recommendations from alumni. You might even write thank you notes after you make a visit to the school. There are ways to help yourself stand out from all these other applicants. And the key way is just demonstrate that you care about the school. If you'd like more insights and access to New Jersey's elite core of academic coaches and admissions experts, check out stormthetest.com. And remember, don't just take this test, storm it. We all recognize that the cost of medical insurance is constantly rising. Do you review your health coverage each year to see if your current insurance company and benefits are still your best option? The goal of consumer-driven health plans is to save premium dollars and give a covered individual greater control over how their health care dollars are spent. These types of programs shift out-of-pocket exposure from premium dollars to the payment of claims once they've actually been incurred. Ideally, the savings associated with purchasing a consumer-driven health plan would be used to fund an HSA. Hi, I'm Ed Gaelic, a life and health insurance broker and founder of PSI Consultants, located in Glenrock, New Jersey. We have specialized in personal insurance and company-sponsored health benefits since 1985. Health savings accounts are available to almost everyone who participates in a qualified high-deductible health plan, or HDHP. Money going into an HSA is tax-deductible. Money coming out tax-free provided you use that money to reimburse yourself for qualified medical expenses. Stay healthy and or manage care wisely, such as using a Tier 1 drug versus a Tier 2 or Tier 3, and you accumulate more of your money in the HSA. An HDHP applies a deductible to all eligible expenses first, including prescriptions. So in essence, you are self-insuring up to your deductible. Only preventive care may be covered on a first-dollar basis. In addition, for anyone with dependents, there is a family aggregate deductible, which is typically double the individual amount, which can be met by one family member or any combination of those covered. The same family aggregate rule would apply to the max out-of-pocket as well. These two aspects of an HDHP would make the premium less compared to a conventional plan. To contact us and learn more, please visit our website at psi-consultants.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman, host of Conversations with Joan. I'm excited to announce that we're taking the show on the road, and the first stop is the New York Open Center. Please join me on Sunday, July 21st at 10 a.m. when my guest is Colleen Kelly Alexander, author of Gratitude in Motion. Colleen was hit by a multi-ton freight liner. Her body was mangled from the waist down and drained of its blood. She was resuscitated twice and remained in a coma for over five weeks. Colleen endured multiple surgeries as her body struggled to heal, but Colleen did not just survive. Today, she thrives. To honor the EMTs and medical professionals who saved her life, she has completed 50 races and 40 triathlons. Colleen is truly a miracle. I hope you'll join us. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash events. That's cyacyl.com slash events. And be sure to tune into Conversations with Joan every Sunday night at 10 p.m. right here on AM 970 The Answer. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss how moms can evaluate evaluate their values. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan. So, Amy, this is a great topic, evaluating your values as a mom. What do you mean when you say that this is something we should be doing? I have a background in career counseling, and it was important when I was a career counselor to ask my clients what values were important to them to have in a job. And similarly, Joan, I've recognized that it's important as mothers for us to think about what values are important for us, not only to have in our role as a mom, but also what values are we exemplifying and living as mothers, as role models for our children. 
Are we encouraging with our words achievement only, like values such as where our kids go to school or what kind of car we drive? Or are we also encouraging with our words and actions different types of values, such as the effort we put into learning and helping others? Amy, how do you believe we can determine our values? Well, one of the best books I've ever read is called The Biggest Job We'll Ever Have by Laura and Malcolm Gold. And they differentiate values based on what they call achievement culture values and character values or character culture. And it's an excellent chapter that parents can refer to in that book. Also, in um, the mom's course that I offer, we do exercises to help mothers understand what they're valuing on a daily basis and how they're living those values. An example would be to think of some activities that you love doing as a mom. And then I would encourage you to write down five reasons you love doing them and think about those aspects of the activity. Do they reflect various values that you hold dear? For example, one mother wrote actually that she loves, believe it or not, she loves shoveling snow, <laughs> shoveling snow. And when, when she wrote down how come, one of the main reasons was because of the peace and the oneness she feels with the world around her. It's calm, it's quiet, and yet she feels so alive doing it. And then she needed to think about how she's acting out those values in her role as a mom. For me, I love having family meals. And some of the reasons how come, it's because I love you know, the humor that we share at mealtime. I love the feeling of connection as family members. I love how we listen to each other. So those are values as a mother that I value and I deem essential. So I, it's important for each of us to really look at what we're, you know, living and speaking in regards to our values on a daily basis. Amy, would you give us an example of a value you have learned? Sure. One value that I find essential for me, I exemplify it in different ways, but um, it's the need for quiet time. And really, that's not the cultural norm these days, right? There's so much coming at us. There's always all these different distractions. But the reason I value the quiet time, and it could be just a few minutes throughout the day, waiting for my girls when I'm picking them up from school, in the morning when I have a tea, cup of tea or coffee, and during that time, it allows me to process my day. What will I need to do? What do I want to do? What am I learning? Or how the day went. And I exemplify with this with my daughters by really allowing them to see me sit quietly sometimes with no distractions, no phone, no screen. And I also, Joan, I encourage them to do this. And sometimes we even do it together, even if it's just for a few minutes. Even if I grab them as I walk by and I pull them over and have them sit on my lap and I just hold them quietly, it's to the point where they know that I'm pulling them over intentionally to hold them, to quiet them. And um, even though they laugh sometimes, they appreciate the importance of quiet now also and um, especially since they're getting older. So that's one value that I definitely feel is essential. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, or if you would like to get a copy of her new book, Infant Inspiration, you can visit her website, amymcollins.com. And as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash amy. Hi, this is Joan Herman, host of Conversations with Joan. I'm excited to announce that we're taking the show on the road, and the first stop is the New York Open Center. Please join me on Sunday, July 21st at 10 a.m. when my guest is Colleen Kelly Alexander, author of Gratitude in Motion. Colleen was hit by a multi-ton freight liner. Her body was mangled from the waist down and drained of its blood. She was resuscitated twice and remained in a coma for over five weeks. Colleen endured multiple surgeries as her body struggled to heal, but Colleen did not just survive. Today, she thrives. To honor the EMTs and medical professionals who saved her life, she has completed 50 races and 40 triathlons. Colleen is truly a miracle. I hope you'll join us. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash events. That's cyacyl.com slash events. And be sure to tune into Conversations with Joan every Sunday night at 10 p.m. right here on AM 970 The Answer. 
When was the last time you cleaned out your closet? Hi, I'm Sonica Guadara, certified personal fashion stylist and founder of Style by Sonica. It can be difficult to let go of pretty things that once made your heart flutter or that sweater a relative knit for you. Or what about those pair of jeans you keep saying you'll fit into once you lose the weight? Justifying to keep pieces you no longer need, especially the ones that you spent hard-earned money, can be a daunting task. But when your closet is full to capacity, a closet edit is a must. Especially if you are constantly saying that you have nothing to wear with a closet full of clothes. Once you have decided it's time to edit your closet, take in mind the following key factors when doing the edit. Does the garment fit? Have I worn this in the last year? Will I wear it again? Is this in style? Would I buy this today? And last but not least, do I feel confident when wearing this? If you say no to any of the things above, it's time to let go, donate, sell, or toss. If you want to learn more about me and personal styling, visit me at stylebysonica.com. Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit GarySiniseFoundation.org. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.